Well, I want to thank you for the privilege of being here for uh, again. And uh, before we get started, it is Memorial Day. We've done a lot about Memorial Day. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Memorial Day before I get started into the sermon. So because it is Memorial Day, I did a little history on Memorial Day. And um, I thought I knew it all, right? Did y'all ever feel like you know it all sometimes? Well, Memorial Day had been going on for so long, I figured, well, I know Memorial Day. I know all about it. Well, I mean, I got to study it. I discovered how little I knew. <laughs> if I could find my notes here, I've got too many of them. Be a long sermon. <laughs> All right. Memorial Day was started in 1868, and it was started after the Civil War, and it was started at 644,000 Americans died in a four-year period. They gave their life for what they believed in. Now let that soak in for a minute. We just heard that one million. 300 and some odd thousand in all the wars combined. Just think about that for a moment. 644,000 Civil War soldiers died in the 40 years. Our nation was tore apart. Our nation could not come together. Uh, they were trying to, they wanted to, but the hurt was deep. And it stayed deep for a long time. In 1868, a general, um, John A. Logan established, uh, they called it Declaration Day instead of Memorial Day. And Declaration Day was declared to be May 30th. What is today? May 30th. This was the original Memorial Day was today. And it was called Declaration Day. On the first Declaration Day, a General James Garfield made a speech at Arlington Cemetery where 5,000 people, volunteers, decorated the graves of 20,000 fallen soldiers who were buried there. Now, you know, death is tragic, no matter how it comes. But when someone volunteers their life for our freedom, it makes it pretty special. It makes it very special. And that could be through military, that could be through the, through the police, that could be through the fire responders, that could be just from a friend trying to save another friend's life and giving his life to that as well. But we call those people heroes, don't we? We call them brave. And we need to honor them, and we do. And they rightly are heroes, and they are brave. But I got to tell you that, that those that I've talked to that have served in war and have survived the battle, they don't see themselves as brave. They don't see themselves as heroes, even though they are. They see themselves as someone who is so terrified and so afraid that there's only one direction to go, and that was through the middle of terror. And they had no idea whether they're going to survive, or whether they're going to die, and when they, if they did survive, they felt guilty that they lived and their friends died. And it's for this reason that it's difficult. For someone who has been through the battles and terrors of war to talk to someone who has not been. 
It's because they realize that the only way you could possibly understand the terror that someone went through on something like that too is to have experienced that terror yourself. It's such a bad memory that they really don't even want to discuss it at all in most cases, much less with someone who truly can't understand. And it's for this reason that we don't really understand ourselves if you've never been there. But I want you to know that we don't need to understand, but we can accept their sacrifice and we can honor their sacrifice today. And we have, through the song, we've honored their sacrifice through the flags that were hung up. We've honored those sacrifices in our hearts. I know when I was a kid, we would go to the cemeteries up in Oklahoma and we would decorate the graves. I was little, I didn't have no idea what I was doing. My job was picking dandelions, by the way. <laughs> but we did, I remember doing that. And I wondered when I was a kid, it was still called Declaration Day at that point. Moi. Moi. There okay. we go. Uh, are we good now? We got it. Okay. And it was still called Declaration Day when I was a kid. See, Declaration Day didn't move to Memorial Day until 1968. When Congress passed, and it wasn't approved until 1971, that Memorial Day would be moved to the last Monday in May for a three-day weekend. That's how important it is. For three days, we are to remember those that have fallen and gave their lives. But you know, these fallen heroes, we don't know much about them other than the ones that were survivors that told us. And they don't want to really talk about it because they know that we really don't understand. We admire them, but we don't understand. And it's because of that that they don't want to be honored. It makes us want to honor them even more, doesn't it? That's a true hero. And so we're going to take a moment right now before we pray. And if there's anybody, I know there is, who has someone in your life that gave their life for another, whether in the military, whether in the uh, firefighting or whether in the police, would you just call their name out right now, one at a time? James. James. Captain Paul Pena. Captain Paul Pena. Gary Barker. Gary Barker. John Harris. John Harris. Bobby Griffin. Ralph Garcia. Ralph Garcia. No, Dino. I'm sorry. I missed that part. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't care who you are, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Laughter's good, by the way. Yeah, it's good. I think it's Isn't that a great way to honor them? To call their name before the Lord. You know, literally acknowledge them by name. You know, I don't like lumping things all together, to be honest with you. I really don't. I like to remember specifically who it is that I'm honoring. So let's pray. Lord, I just thank you this morning that I can come to you and deliver your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you for those that were called out today. I thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you're going to do, and all, that's on all of your promises, Lord. I know that you promised to always be with us, never forsake us or leave us. I know you told us that you go to prepare a place for us and where you are, we will be also and you'll come to get us. And you told us that if it wasn't so, you wouldn't have said so. Lord, we take you, we take your promises because they came from you. The same mouth that created the heavens and the earth, 
is the same mouth that made those promises. So Lord, we take those promises into us and we live by those and we hang to those. And we give you the honor and glory and we ask for your joy in all that we do. Your son sent Jesus Christ, amen. Well, now we can begin, okay? You know, last time I spoke to you, we spoke to about what it would take to bring a nation back from a fall from, from folly. We talked about what God told Solomon. He says, if my nation who are called by my name, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. We talked about what all that meant one by one. We broke that down. And we talked about you know what all that meant. And today we're going to carry with that theme just a little bit more, but we're going to add to being in the presence of God. You see, being in the presence of God means everything. We were created by God, by God himself, to live within his presence. And you only have to go to Genesis chapter 1 to understand that. In Genesis chapter 1, I want you to consider this. When God created the grass, the trees, and the seed, and all vegetation on the earth, he spoke to the earth. When God created the stars and the heavens, he spoke to the heavens. When God created fish, he talked to the waters. When God created the cattle and all the creepy things on the earth, again, he talked to the earth. But did you know when he talked to man, he talked to himself. He says, let's turn there. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1 and let's just read uh, before we get too involved. I mean, it's important that we understand where this presence came from. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, just like the trees and the flowers and the seeds, they can't survive without soil, can they? Because God spoke to the earth. And the earth is what brought that forward. And just like the fish, they can't survive without water because God spoke to the water. And that water is the, is the, is the necessity of life for those fish. <coughs> and But when God created man, he spoke to himself. And so... We can't survive. We can't live without God. But God gave us a free will. And when we try to live without God, the evil one comes in, Satan. And he brings death and destruction with him when he comes. And so we have to understand that living in the presence of God, how important that really is in our lives. It's absolutely critical in our lives. You know, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we get involved in open discussions, we share our stories, we go to Bible schools, we try to teach one another, all wanting to experience God's presence. The desire to experience God's presence, it's easy to understand because God is love. 
That's what 1 John says. It says, God is love. It says, in him there is no darkness at all. Well, who doesn't want love in their life? <clears throat> you know, I go, I go to the jails sometimes, and, and, and you know, inside those jails, there's some pretty hard hombres, man. Downright evil. And they don't like people, but you know what? They want to be loved. You may say, well, man, he sure doesn't give love. You know, that may be true. He may not give love, but I guarantee you he wants to receive it. You know, we are, we are literally designed to live in the love of presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And without him, our doom and destruction overtakes us and overpowers us. It's so important that we understand that living in the presence of God is not possible without faith. True faith. And we're going to talk about this true faith. This is what keeps us connected to Jesus Christ. It's, the real, it's when the real challenges come. True faith will carry you through the challenges that we face every single day. And you know, I like the book of James. I got to admit, James is a book of action. I mean, we just read James, right? And everything about James is just action Jackson, just about, you know. And, and I love, I just love the book of James. But did you know James in chapter 2, that whole section that we read, it's about faith. And it's about works and how works and faith work together for a desired out, in outcome. In verse 14 in, in chapter, chapter 2 of James, it says, What does it profit, my brother? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Wow, that's a great question. You know, we're told in many churches and many Bible classes that faith is all you need. We're told that. We even believe that. And did you know that's true? Faith is all you need. It's true faith is what you, all you need. But we end up playing this faith game sometimes. We play the faith game by, by saying, well, I have faith, and I know that works doesn't get me to heaven, so I'm not going to work. And I think we dumb down the whole works thing so much that many people live their life of faith <laughs> And don't have any works because they're told so much that works won't get you to heaven. It's true. Works will not get you to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. But it's equally true that faith without works is dead. And we're going to discover that today in several of these passages. It goes on to say, I mean, James explains what he says. He says in verse 15, it says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of food, and of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? And what good does it do to have the means to help someone, to have the means and the fortitude and the time to help someone through a time in their life? What good does it do when you have those resources and you don't use them in the kingdom of God? Should we help those people? Of course we should. Do we? Of course you do. But not everybody does. Many people will say, just go in peace. I'll pray for you. You know, we should pray for them anyway, but we should also take care of their needs as well. We're commanded to them to do that. And then it goes on to say, it says in verse 17, thus also faith by itself that does not have works is dead. 
know, some of you who are diehard works people are probably not liking me right now. But I didn't write this. You know, I think it's important that we understand what true faith is, though. True faith, we have works behind our faith. You know, if I believe, if I have faith that when I take a breath, the next breath of air is going to be there, when I take my second breath, that's faith. If I take my legs and I walk across the room, then I have faith my legs are going to get me from there and back. Jesus wants us to have that kind of faith in him, so much so that we will go wherever he tells us to go without question. In verse 18 it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now what he's saying here, folks, is, is that don't tell me about how much Jesus you have in your life. Just do Jesus. Wake up and do Jesus. Now put your Jesus on first thing in the morning. Before you even get out of bed, put Jesus on. Don't tell me about how much Jesus you are. Now I go to a lot of different churches and I talk to a lot of different people. And I get into these discussions sometimes and, and they start, I quote this scripture, he quotes this scripture, and, they quote, and I can do that if I wanted to. But what's the point about Jesus and each other if you're not going to do Jesus? Right. No. This church just took up a collection for a pastor who's going to Brownsville myself and Sid is going as well. And you guys don't know me very well, but you know that someone's hurting in Brownsville. And you stepped up and took up a collection. Praise God. You got it. That's your works, coupled with your faith, knowing that there was someone hurting out there, and you had the means to do it, and you stepped up and did it. Man, praise God for this church, that they can do something like that. I know big churches. Matter of fact, I just talked to a big church in San Marcos. I would love to give you their name because I'm upset with them. <laughs> <laughs> but I better not. There's over 600 members in this church, and she tells me I don't have enough time to, make, to get the collection, so you'll have to go elsewhere. Wow. Really? I told her that three weeks ago, folks. Not enough time. You know, that's someone who says that I have faith. I have faith. I have faith. And there's nothing behind it. It's sad. It's sad that a church that size would be in that position. So anyway, it says, God says, um, I got kind of went off down a rabbit trail, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. It says, uh, number 19, it says, you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the, de the demons believe and tremble. You know, that faith thing, God, if that's all you have, kind of puts you in the same category as believing in God and that's it. You know, I want to be one up on the devil, to be honest with you. I want God to use me. I wake up every morning asking God to keep my eyes open that I don't miss those opportunities that he prepared for me before the day began. Do you wake up that way? Could you start waking up that way? Just asking God to open your eyes. I know you want to. I know you want to be used of God. I know you want God in your life. I know you want his presence. But you're not going to be able to feel the presence of God until your faith goes into action and you have works of your faith. See, God can't bless dead faith. God will bless you with life. 
God will bless you with the Holy Spirit to pull you in. He will never let you go. But God, you will not feel the presence of God until your faith and your works are coupled together and your works are a manifestation of your faith. And we know it doesn't save us. But it is a manifestation of true faith. It goes on to say, it says, um, uh, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and that by, by, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Wow. People will use that, that, that passage right there. To see, see, you can work your way to heaven. You're justified by works. That's not what it says. You know, a lot of faiths out there will, are faith or works-based faiths. That's not at all what it says. It says quite the opposite. Our works are a manifestation of our faith. You know, this is a good transition to go into what I really want to talk about. <laughs> I really didn't want to talk about that. That was just, a, that, that was just kind of the, the, the laying the groundwork for how our faith and our works come together. Because it's really confusing when we're told from little children that faith is all you need. And it is true. Faith is all you need, but we need to understand what that true faith really is. You know, um, I spent a lot of years studying the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah. And you know, I, I got to tell you that I stand in awe. I got to tell you that every single one I read about, I feel about this tall next to them. They are like the giants in my life. They're not in my life. I mean, I know they've gone on, but wow. If you want to compare yourself to someone great, drop the basketball stars. <laughs> drop the football stars. I mean, they're great. I get it. Compare yourself to the patriarchs. Wow. You know, in Matthew 25 is what I really want to talk about. Honestly. I wasn't really joking about that. You know, what's kind of funny. You know, in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 21, it talks about the second coming of Christ. And in Christ's first coming, he came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose from the grave, that through his death and our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may have eternal life. Jesus came the first time for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came for the first time that through that sacrifice and through us accepting that, that we no longer have to worry about where we're going to go. We'll have eternal life in heaven once we pass from this to that. But you know, when he comes back the second time, he's not doing that over again. That was a once and he was done kind of thing. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's coming back to judge the nations. And I talked to some of you out here, and I've talked to other people and other friends, and many of you believe that Jesus is going to return in our lifetime. Some believe that he's going to return in the next few years even, maybe. 
the way the world is going, the way the confusion is happening, the way things are coming down on us, many of us believe that we are going to experience the end of the world as we know it today and the beginning of Revelations as we, as, as, as we read it. I know exception. I feel that way as well. But I must tell you that every generation prior to us has felt the same way. World War I, World War II, the influenza, the blue bonnie plague, Vietnam, go on and on and on. And we've all we've all kind of felt that way. But if we really believe what we what we take what we say we believe, we need to understand what this second coming is going to be and how serious it is and how it's going to affect us. Because Jesus isn't coming in to just come in. He's coming in to judge the nations. He's coming in to separate the sheep from the goats. And I got to tell you that it doesn't say I'm going to separate the church from the world. He says I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And that tells me that we got a lot of goats in the church. We got a lot of sheep too. If you got a good, good if you got a good church, you got a whole lot more sheep than you do goats. You know, a small church like this, I doubt very seriously if there is a goat here. But I guarantee you, in the bigger churches, they got more than a few, more than a few. Let's just read what what what, what Jesus wrote. If you've got a red letter Bible, Bible, you realize that this is Jesus speaking himself. It says, "When the Son of Man comes in His glory." And all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That's verse 31, chapter 25. You know, he's coming with, with his entire entourage of angels from heaven. And he's going to sit on his throne of glory. That's the throne of judgment. That's the judgment before the thousand year reign. And that's the throne of his glory. And he's going to judge each and every one of us. It says all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right, but his goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Wow. When you inherit something, it's something that was put aside for you while you were young, before you could even understand it, before you could accept it, before you were responsible with it, it was set aside for you. So when you grew up old enough and be responsible enough to receive it, it could be given to you. And when you're given an inheritance, an inheritance is not something that's, that, that's pulled back. It's yours. It's set aside for you. And all you have to do is have faith. True faith. You see why we went to James? All we have to do is have true faith. Our faith in action is, says who we are. Jesus says, I know you by your fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering. That's how Jesus knows us. Those are all things of action through our faith. And without those things, that you don't have the, the works or the action behind the faith. Jesus knows us by our works. Jesus knows us by our faith. True faith. And he's going to take that true faith from the sheep. He's going to say, your inheritance is here for you. Awesome picture. Hmm. 
And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the kingdom will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Aren't all those actions, aren't those actions of our faith? Aren't those our, our faith and absolute action with no regard to ourselves, putting others before us, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take care of our needs, but we need to take care of them? When we can have that kind of faith, folks, you've got it going on, man. You truly do. You know, I want that kind of faith, but you know, I fall short. I desire that kind of faith. I would walk through coals to get that. But I fall short. But I, want, I don't want to. And then, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these, my brother, you did it to me. You see, when you minister to someone else, you're ministering to Jesus Christ himself. You know, Mother Teresa, does everybody here know who Mother Teresa is? I would, I would hope so. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a vile, disgusting place on earth, if I can put it that way. But she, that was her ministry. She gave her life to minister to the least of the least. And she, and years after her ministry started, she was by herself. And she got on her knees and began praying, Lord, help me, help me. I can't do this. I need help. If you read some of her letters, she was discouraged. She was drawn, distraught. Uh, it's not the Mother Teresa that you think. But she was faithful. Her faith stayed in action, never quivered. But she had a pain in her. She was the burden that she carried with all of this suffering and all this pain, all this death around her. A man came from another country, and I wish I knew the country, but I don't. Came from another country, he was a doctor of all things. What exactly what she needed. And Mother Teresa asked him, Why have you come here? And his answer was, So that I can help the dying and the sick. Man, that sounds like a great answer, doesn't it? Mother Teresa said, I can't use you. She said, unless you came here to meet Jesus, I can't, I can't use you. And I think Mother Teresa understood what I'm saying. I think Mother Teresa got it right. You know, that young man did stay there. And he did meet Jesus. When we do for God's people, we meet Jesus. And when we stand before this judgment seat of, the, of, the, of, of God, Jesus' glory, and you've done those things, and you did not do it for accolades, you did not do it for pats on the back, you did it because of your faith, you get to inherit what Jesus has set aside for you. That's a great picture, folks. And we need to understand that if we believe that the end is coming, we need to believe what that end is going to be like. We need to start working towards being that sheep that God wants us to be. We need to be, start working towards it. If you're a little bit on the goat side, we need to put that goat to rest. 
We need to transform into a sheep. And if you're a sheep and you're kind of getting kind of lazy, you don't want to become a goat either. It goes both ways, right? It just does. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse it into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the everlasting punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. Wow. Now, do we understand what's coming our way? I think we do. Are we preparing ourselves for that, to meet? Are we preparing ourselves for our glorious inheritance? I know most of you are. But you may know someone that's not. And so, what do you say to encourage them? Yeah, that's another really good question. Because, you see, that's part of your works. You know, your faith, coupled with your works, comes out of an outpouring of concern for those that don't know the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ or what those things mean. So it's, how do we do this? What do, what do we go do? You know, we don't have to wait until we, we're dead and going to the pearly gates to experience God's presence. We can do it right here, right now, while we're on this earth. You know, a lot of the songs we sing are about when we leave this life and we enter into the presence of God. A lot of our teachers teach about, you know, being in the presence of God when, when, when we awake from our slumber. All of those are correct teachings. Nothing wrong with any of it. But we don't have to wait that long. We can experience Christ. We can experience uh, all of the salvation, everything right here on this earth and, and recognize the presence of God when he's with us. You know, I'm going to tick off a couple of things that I, that I wrote down. You know, Moses, he's one patriarch, right? He was adopted by the Pharaoh. He's the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh himself. He was trained in all arts, all ways of war, highly educated man. And then he discovered that he was from Hebrew roots and he saw what was happening to the Hebrews and he killed an Egyptian. From there, he went into hiding. He ran, scared for his life, knowing that because he killed an Egyptian that he would be, he'd be tried and probably hung. For 40 years, he lived in the desert. He was 80 years old when the burning bush appeared to him. See, I don't think Moses, I don't read anywhere Moses knew that he was about to come into the presence of the living God. But he did, from a burning bush. And that burning bush told Moses what he was going to have to do. And you know, the interesting part is, is that Moses bargained with God. He said, I can't speak, so send someone with me. He did I think it's kind of irritated God, but it did. And he sends him someone to speak. And Moses' faith went into action. 
through the faith of Moses and through the presence of God in his life and for him recognizing the presence of God. Because you see, when he stood at that burning bush, he knew he was in the presence of God and he took his shoes off. Now we might say, well, that doesn't really mean much. It did then. He took his sandals off. <clears throat> and so he led for 40 years the Israelites in a circle, around and around and around. They never knew they were going in a circle. Have you ever looked on the map? For 40 years, Moses led the Israelites in the desert in a circle. And of course, we know that, that Moses ended up on Mount Nebo overlooking the promised land. Moses lived in the presence of God once he, did, once he discovered the presence of God. God called Moses his friend. God spoke to Moses on a daily basis. God guided Moses. God gave Moses wisdom. And it's all because of Moses' faith went into action. God chose Moses. And Moses recognized that. You know, the Pharaoh also came into the presence of the living God also. Wow. And the last thing the Pharaoh saw was the waters coming down upon him. You know, I wouldn't want to be in the presence of an angry God. Not when I'm the one that he's angry at. You know, there's two ways to come in his presence, isn't there? You know, what about Abraham? There's so much we could say about Abraham. We could have a two-hour sermon right there. And well, we got a couple hours left. <laughs> but Abraham, it says what we read in James, it was a credit to him for righteousness, what he did. And by faith, Abraham was told to go sacrifice your son. And so the next morning, Abraham goes, he gets his donkey, he gets some wood, grabs his son and heads up to the mountain. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible where Abraham hesitated. Now, we can conjure up some discussion and, and talk about that, but I don't read anywhere in the Bible where Abraham hesitated. God said, Abraham believed, Abraham put his works with his faith and took off. Now, we can say, well, maybe Abraham realized that God was going to provide a goat. You kind of read between the lines there because that's not what it says. Abraham took off to the mountains. And he builds an altar. He puts his son on that altar. Right before he's about to sacrifice his son, God said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You got your real sacrifice. Abraham recognized that. They sacrificed the ram that God provided, and Abraham and Isaac walked off the mountain. But Abraham was willing, as hard and as tough as it was, was to be obedient through his faith to the living God through the works of his faith. You see how works and faith were coming together? You know, Abraham could have easily said, you know, God, I, I know you're God. I get it. I didn't sacrifice myself. But he didn't. His works just took off. You know, I can't imagine someone telling me to sacrifice my only son. I know I would not, I would not live up to what Abraham did. I, I just know that. I would have to get on my knees and ask for forgiveness, but I just couldn't do that. But Abraham did. And what about Gideon? Gideon was just a guy out tending his sheep. Had no clue. No clue at all. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and he becomes in the presence of God, and he realizes it right away. And the angel says, rise up, mighty warrior. 
Gideon's kind of looking around like, man, who are you talking to? Gideon even tells him is that my clan is the least of all the clans, and I'm the youngest of my clan. You sure you got the right dude, man? You know, that puts Gideon, if you think about it, probably around 13 years old. That's pretty darn young to be a mighty warrior, I think. So anyway, here's this 13-year-old kid in the middle of the field just tending his sheep, and the, and the presence of God comes before him. And Gideon is not so sure about this, and he says, you know, if you're really who you say you are, this fleece thing will be wet in the morning, and it'll be dry everywhere. <coughs> Wakes up the next morning, guess what? The fleece thing was wet, and it was dry everywhere else. He goes, you know, that was really cool, but can you do it in reverse? And then I really will believe it. <laughs> and he did. And so we know that, that Gideon, this is a long story, so we're not going to tell the whole story, but we know, and I would encourage you to read it, by the way. So I know that, that Gideon ended up conquering over 100,000 Philistines with 300 men. You know, God used Gideon in a mighty way because Gideon's faith, once he realized who he was in front of, his faith and his works began going together, and he did whatever God told him to do without question, and he did it. <coughs> How many people here with faith would take on 100,000 Philistines with 300 men? I don't see any answer. <laughs> That's what Gideon did, though. His faith and his works are working together, and when Jesus Christ comes to the judgment seat, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for the sheep and he's looking for the goats. And if you don't have true faith, I mean really true faith, you're in with the goats. And it's not a good place to be. We talked to him last time I spoke to you, we talked about Solomon. How Solomon had built the temple and how God appeared in the temple in a cloud of smoke. And how God spoke to Solomon a second time. I see Solomon's acts of faith with the building of the temple and the prayer that he prayed, the fervent prayer that he prayed to God about filling the temple and forgiving his people when they do all these vile things that they've done in the past. See, his, his works at that time was through prayer, fervent prayer. And God answered that and he became in the presence of the living God. You know, your works doesn't have to be building 10 houses. It's great if you're capable of doing that, but it can be prayer. That can be your works. I go on mission trips all the time where I used to before COVID. And there was a, a dear lady, her name was Marion. And uh, she didn't have much love for this world anymore, but she would pray for my wife and I from the time we left to the time we, we got back. And sometimes if she didn't know we got back, she continued to pray until she heard from us. Man. That was her works. I bet she wore out more knees in her, her jeans than anybody I've ever known. She was the greatest, and is still to this day, the greatest prayer warrior I've ever met in my life. I've heard her pray, and I just, I stand in awe of her. She's like 90 years old now. And her prayers are just as strong today as they were when I met her 35 years ago. That's her works. God told her to pray, and she does. And what about Samuel? Man. Samuel was a little boy. God came to Samuel and said, said, and was calling out to Samuel. And Samuel thought it was his master. And he goes to his master. His master says, no, it wasn't me. Go back to bed. 
This went on three times, and then finally his master realizes that God's speaking to Samuel. He says, Samuel, he goes, next time he speaks to you, pay attention and listen. Samuel did. To make a long story short, Samuel became one of the greatest prophets and just awesome stories of Samuel. Samuel's a little over, uh, overlooked, I think. And if you want to study some of the prophets, take some time and read about Samuel. He confronted King David, and it's just, oh, it just really cool what Samuel did. And I would be absolutely amiss if I didn't close with speaking about Elijah. There's nobody greater than Elijah, in my opinion. Right now I'm speaking, so that's what counts, right? <laughs> Not really. But Elijah, what a great, great prophet. You know, when I was studying for this for this sermon, I came across a passage uh, that I overlooked. And uh, maybe you never overlooked it, but I overlooked it. I, I just didn't didn't really realize it was there. And I want to read it to you. Let's go back. If you go back to James chapter five, I hate for you guys to go backwards on this, but this is kind of important for what we're talking about. If you go back to James chapter 5, and starting in, say, verse, no, let's say, 15. And in verse 15, chapter 5, it says, And the, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, forever prayer of the righteous man availeth much. And we all know that passage. We've heard that passage, right? It's this next one that I overlook. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Really? Are you serious? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's what it says. This is the guy who God sent a chariot down from heaven to pick him up and take him back to heaven. He never even experienced death. And Elijah has a nature like mine? Praise God for the things that Elijah did because he lived in the presence of God and his works was working with his faith and his faith was a manifestation of his or his works was a manifestation of his faith. God saw that, blessed him, and came down and picked him up in his last days. Elijah is the man that, that called fire down from heaven and burned up the altar. And really, Elijah is a, just a man with a nature like ours. Let that sink in for a minute. One of the greatest men in the entire Old Testament. And James tells us that he's just like us. Wow, the very things that James, that, that Elijah was able to do, that means that we're capable of it if we have true faith and we live in that true faith mode 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, I can't do that. I haven't done that. But Elijah did. You know, in, the, in Kings, 1 Kings 18 through 15, uh, 18 and then starting in verse 15. I'm just, we don't have to read it. I'm just going to tell the story. 
In 1 Kings, it tells a little bit about Elijah when he called fire down from heaven. And all the prophets had been run off. King Ahab was in charge and he had run all the prophets that the Lord had put in place. And Elijah was the last one left. And God told Elijah, go tell King Ahab we're going to dry up the land. So he did. And he says, now I want you to go live in this cave and you're going to drink the water from the brook and the ravens are going to come feed you until it's time for me to dispatch you elsewhere. So Elijah did. He told Ahab that the land is going to dry up and he went in this cave. He went in the cave of hiding because Ahab was looking to kill him. And he was the last prophet of Israel that was left. And then all of a sudden the brook dries up and God says, now that the brook's dried up, I want you to go back to Ahab and talk to him. So Elijah did. He goes back and he gets a meeting with Ahab and he says, call all of your prophets, the 450 of them of Baal, and meet me on the mountain. Okay, what are we going to do? Your prophets are going to cut up a bull and you're going to put them on an altar. And I'm going to cut up a bull and I'm going to put them on an altar. And then we're going to pray to our gods and the first God that answers with fire, that's the real God. And that's who, that's who you'll serve. Now, I've left a lot of that out for you Bible scholars who are wondering, but it's deliberate because it's a long story. And so what happens? The 450 prophets of Baal wail and moan and cut themselves and they dance all day long into the evening hours. And Elijah begins to make fun of them, say, scream a little louder, I don't think he can hear you. You know, they were serving sticks and stones, what they were worshiping. The, the, the prophets of Baal were just little figures of stone and sticks. And there's no way that can come down from heaven. Finally, they give up, and it becomes Elijah's turn. Elijah turned to heaven in one prayer, and fire came down from heaven. It burned up the altar, it burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the stones, licked up all the water, and burned up the ground around it. And those people turned back, Israel turned back to the living God. You know, we live in a world today that they don't realize the power that's before them just by living true faith. And I hope this morning that me explaining to you what true faith truly is and examples in the Bible of men that really had true faith and they lived in the presence of God and they performed in the presence of God and they didn't do anything for themselves. It was always for those that were in need and they trusted God to take care of their needs that we can do that too. Remember, Elijah was just a man with a nature like ours. That's us, folks. We don't have to be the goat. We can be the sheep. I want to thank you for allowing me to talk to you this morning. Thank you so much. Um, We'd like to offer you, if you've never received Christ in your heart, to get a hold of one of the deacons or elders here. Discuss it with them. Talk to them. If you don't understand how you can put your faith to action, talk to one of the elders here. They can certainly tell you. And not all the elders are men, by the way. There's some women here, too. And you're welcome to talk to them. You know, in the Bible, they have deaconess. Did you know that? A lot of people don't realize that. Now, I, I, I would encourage you, if you don't understand this, or you want to, if you want your true faith to grow into a faith of action and you don't know how, 
get, uh, get, get, getting coupled with someone and begin to learn that and begin to trust in the Lord to provide for your needs and begin to put others before yourself. I know you have the nature for it. I know you want to do it. So again, I want to thank you for letting me speak to you this morning.